We've been raising the roof this morning, haven't we? And so we should, because Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, for many in our culture, Easter's for a weekend, then they put it away. But for the church, today begins a season. Well, in fact, the last three days have begun a new season, starting with these three special days. I do believe it goes on Easter in the church calendar for eight Sundays. So we will be speaking and preaching and worshipping Easter over the next few weeks. But during this time, as Christian disciples, we are trying to learn what it means to live faithfully before God who raised Jesus from the dead. So for us here today, Easter isn't so much about chocolate bunnies, although thank you, Claire. I really love the Lindet ones you gave us. That's beautiful. One of them's gone already, but we have another one waiting at home. And, um, and it's not about a bank holiday. It's about resurrection. And Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. Wow, what a call. If Christ has not been raised, then all of this celebration is in vain. I don't find this easy faith. And I suspect that the majority of us sitting in this meeting this morning, whilst it comes easily off the lips, deep down in our hearts, don't every Monday morning, we don't necessarily find it easy faith. Actually, we're in good company. It wasn't easy faith for the first women at the tomb, stunned and dazzled by a bright young man that they meet there. In fact, we left the Bible text this morning at verse 8 in chapter 16 because that's the original old ancient ending of St. Mark's Gospel. The next few verses were kind of added on. That doesn't make them any less important or any less true because by the discernment of the canon, they should be there. But actually, in the ancient manuscripts, in Mark's Gospel, it stops at verse 8. And in my Bible, it says, end of the original ending. Did you get that in your Bible this morning? It's an awkward ending. The women run away confused and frightened. And we might find ourselves in that same place this morning, us moderns, asking, is it possible? We're having a leadership team meeting the other day. I hope he doesn't mind because he's not in the room. But it was Jonathan Lomax who said to me, he was talking about the amazingness of the, the faith that we have, actually. And he said, it's mad, isn't it? It's mad, the resurrection. Because it doesn't fit our rational reasoning 21st century minds. And it's one of the frictions, perhaps, between science and religion for us. Is it possible? 1 Corinthians 15, we find another group of people, the early church, the early Christians, who even they were questioning, was the resurrection of Jesus true? So we go down a long way with our doubts. And it's Paul who has to resist and pull them back that this question of resurrection is of first 
importance. Other things we can debate, dates of things, metaphors, language, genres in the Bible, poetry or literal, we cannot get past this one. And so Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures have said. And then he goes on to say, look, this is what everybody's saying. First, he was seen by Peter, put it in yellow for you, and after by the 12, and after that by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's persuading them and convincing them, say, don't you remember this? And then he says, last of all, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. And so I think this morning we can say, can't we, that resurrection isn't necessarily easy to believe. And for some of us, it's mad. Although... Although this week I was so delighted to come across some writings of C.S. Lewis. Have you read any of his works? C.S. Lewis, marvellous stuff. Please get reading C.S. Lewis. And um, he has a book called Miracles. It's quite an old book. I think it was written in 1947, but it's a classic, so it's still true for us. And he speaks about resurrection. He says, based on... um, some information that was given to him by a scientist friend, that do you know, I find this absolutely fascinating, that every single atom and molecule in your and my body changes within a seven-year time slot. Now, if you work out that I've been married to Richard for 35 years and everything goes in a seven-year time slot, then we are changed people five times over to each other. That's incredible, isn't it? That's science. And so N.T. Wright um, took this thought of C.S. Lewis, and he said, who said, so in fact, it's a bit like, we are, our bodies, a bit like, this is so exciting, like a curved, the curve of a waterfall, where the molecules and the atoms and the particles of water are changing all the time, in discontinuity, whilst at the same time the form of the waterfall, the curve, stays constant in continuity. Is it marvellous? I think it's marvellous because I know that whilst God is a supernatural God, if we look for this, we see clues to resurrection even within creation. And so, excuse this being a personal uh, illustration this morning, when you lose two parents within nine weeks of each other, and in the last four of each other's lives, you see them go from here to here. We normally say they've become a shadow of their former self, don't we? That's what we say. And I could say that about my parents recently, watching them die. They've become a shadow of their former self. N.T. Wright says, that's wrong. 
He says the, the, the bodies we have now are a shadow of the glorious new self we are going to be in the future. So the Jane and the Hubert that I thought were becoming a shadow of themselves are simply a shadow of the beautiful, glorious, perfected Jane and Hubert that they are today. And we praise God that in creation we see signs of resurrection and we say yes to that. However, despite that beautiful illustration for us this morning, we do struggle. And I think we tend to want to have a debate sometimes. And yet resurrection isn't optional because if the gospel's good news, it's good news because of this one thing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was raised from the dead, initiating that one cosmic event to break open closed worlds into a new future, a new community, a way to imagine a new kingdom ruled by Jesus, rather than whatever tired, old, oppressive regime happens to be in power at the time. And I guess this morning the question is not whether we can win a debate on this, but whether we're able to live lives that would make no sense if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. You see, the stories of those who met with Jesus um, after he had been raised, they're not opinions, they're testimonies. Testimonies of how God's love forever has set the shape in his living, living, resurrected presence. And that gorgeous story of Jesus meeting an exhausted Mary Magdalene in the early morning garden. Well, it wouldn't make you say, would it? I believe there's a God, like you might say, I believe in UFOs or not, or that there's life on other planets. It's not that kind of proof, which is why running around looking for Jesus at the tomb in the place of the dead, is kind of a waste of time. But in its quiet truth, this testimony of Mary brings us to our knees. It's a whisper of an angel. He is not here. It's the testimony of a woman. I have seen the Lord. And then the transformation of a bunch of terrified disciples into witnesses who quite literally stand by their testimony, even through their own torture and death. You've only got to read what actually happens to some of these guys. Most of them suffer martyrdom. In this simple testimony, a threshold has been crossed. When you realize this is real, I didn't know this before. Now I know what it means. When everything changes, when we stumble across clues in creation to the movement from life to death, like that curved waterfall that Easter Day marks. And this conversation between the young man and Mary is such a story. It gives us questions we want to ask, sets off a new conversation, perhaps gives us more questions than answers. It's so fragile. So full of mystery. Some of us scientists, hey, we're our own worst enemies, aren't we? Because the sums won't add up. But it just won't do to keep reducing 
these testimonies to something going on inside the heads of the people who gave them that we can explain away. If we go down that road, we lose sight of the conviction that the disciples meet a risen Jesus who is making God present in his presence, in the presence of Jesus. And that is why we have to take seriously what the Bible says about the empty tomb. So even though I know personally that I will struggle with what resurrection is and what it means all my life probably, especially on Monday mornings, and even though in the first century Palestine a woman's word was only worth a tenth of a man's, Mary has staked her life on this, and I'm going to take Mary at her word not only this morning on Easter Day, but when I wake up tomorrow morning, when my brain kind of goes against that. Because I'm who I am living in this century, I'm going to stake my life on it too. And I'm going to take Mary at her word. What would you stake your life on? What have you seen that you will stake your reputation, your possessions on? Perhaps you've seen a spectacular act of kindness over the aggressive forces of death, greed and violence. Perhaps you've witnessed that Jesus' words of peace, love and life can ultimately not be silence. So the big question ultimately for me this morning is how resurrection begins to take shape in us how the ways in which we've put up barriers between ourselves and God have been shattered because God has opened his peace up for us. Where our selfish, destructive acts and reactions can be dealt with by the love shown to us on the cross of Christ. How has resurrection begun to take shape in you, in a new reality that declares that sin has been dealt with, that we can be healed of our miserable consumptions and compulsions and addictions to fear and resentment and self-harm. Where can we live from this reality opened up to us by the peace that Christ has brought. Paul, such a fascinating guy. He was not originally a nice person. He wasn't a pleasant inquirer. He was more like, says one scholar, a terrorist gunman that you might find in the back streets of Aleppo or Baghdad, or Beirut. Supervising a private militia devoted to abducting and imprisoning Christians. But transformed by his encounter with the risen Christ, yes, he says, even I have seen him. He goes back, this time undefended, back to his people he has been trying to silence. Can anyone live like this, says Paul? Yes. Yes. That's me. 
I've done it. Resurrection is living itself out in me and those I've hurt and those I've wronged. He's living out now the painful realities of the reconciliation Jesus makes possible. He's lost his career. He's lost his previous identity. His life is at risk. For Paul, the resurrection is not an opinion or a debate or an argument. It's a whole life thing. Finally this morning, where does resurrection meet us? It must meet me in my everyday life. That one-time event that happened on Good Friday makes it its way from the cross to meet us in our everyday lives. And so I'm going to say to you, when Mary meets the risen Jesus, he tells them to go back home. And I'm going to say the same to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. And he's going ahead of you back to Peckham. And he's going back ahead of you to Clapham and Ealing. Wherever you live. And you will meet him there. Because that's where it all began. Go back home to your ordinary life. Resurrection will rise up. On the streets of our town. In our office in the classroom, in our hospital wards, in THQ and government halls and in our homes and in our gardens. The great challenge of Easter is to go back and join in his work of peace because our everyday world has been transformed. And I say this to myself as to well as to well as well as you if you are not a peacemaker how dare you if i'm not a peacemaker how dare i i love that the early christians chose sunday the first day of the work week to sabbath each sunday a mini easter a reminder that routines have been upended and lives transformed by the power of God that brought Jesus back from the grave and all the way to Galilee. And so this morning, my friends, because of Easter, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. The risen sun goes ahead of us to the places where we live. If you don't want to miss Easter, go back home to your life with its beauty and sorrow and find God there shaking it up and restoring it. Let the cross shake us up and make us and remake us and let it be said that we Christians live in joy, faith and peace in our families and communities, that we are steadfast in the face of injustice and gentle in the face of violence. Let, let our lives be characterized by the love of Christ, which lives and dies and lives again as it floods our souls and sustains us. 
These seven days show us human beings at our best and at our stinking worst in the delusional power of the crowd and the corrupt self-interest of the religious establishment. Those seven days represent us and our lives. And yet these seven days we've just gone through witness that the power of God's love is made visible in weakness. And that is surely how love wins. These things can only be grasped by fools and the childlike. It's mad. It's mad. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.